A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dudley Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamlet and Michael Sidgwick, here to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts, where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also AEW Rampage, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, oh, pay-per-views, premium live events. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a roundup of the week complete with a bloody good quiz of course on wrestle culture as i said though joined by hamlin to review aew dynamite and the highly anticipated rematch between ftr and the young books what a show this was yeah this was six eighths of one of the best dynamites of all time <laughs> i remain like so bored by certain developments like feuds that must continue why sammy guevara just turning himself heel like an absolute moron a couple of other issues that I had as it pertains to the ranking system, but six-eighths of the greatest dynamite of all time. Here are two facts about this dynamite. Um, the Blade wrestled, and this is one of the best dynamites ever. Let's just not put those two facts together <laughs> at any point, because they're both still facts. Um, what I loved about this, I just want to talk now about the structure, because I'm looking forward to diving in individually about all the stuff that ruled. But a few weeks ago... It felt like a dynamite was trending to being an all-timer. And then as much as... Sidgwick liked it more than me, but I still liked it, but the Jericho Appreciation Society Dark Order main event was good. But I don't think it stopped it being a, our one amazing, our two. This was could have gone that way. And then putting the books and FTR on as a main event was such an inspired choice to make it feel like an overall show because it stopped that divide between our mm. one, our two. There was a small sag, but it was destined to peak way, 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 way higher than anything else on the show because that main event was, like, it wasn't definitely going to hit, but you knew really early on it was going to hit and then there was no worries from then on there. And I think that often structurally is the difference between the re- just the really generically very good Dynamites and the, the earnestly fantastic ones. In case I forget to point this out before we go into the um, bit-by-bit review, mm-hmm. I was nervous. I was clock-watching to an extent because I wanted FTR books to get some time, like, mm-hmm. enough time. Like, it's... It, it, Great match isn't necessarily a long match, but, you know, these guys can actually go the distance. So you want to see them do it. Not only was I kind of clock-watching because there was like, oh, we're now cutting backstage to such and such an angle, and here's another one. Not only was I wary of, oh, are they going to get some like enough time to deliver the classic that we know they can, but it just felt a little, it was getting a little bit fake. Like, every single angle we have on the stove at this point needs to be sort of serviced and built in some way. And it's like, the more stuff you shoot, the more fake and contrived it can feel. Mm-hmm. So the elements of the multiple backstage segments that were getting a little bit in that sort of wheelhouse for me, 
some things can just go a week without happening. Otherwise, it just feels like a wacky... I've said this before, but like, here's a backstage thing, here's a backstage thing, here's a backstage thing. It just feels like the writer is telling you the things that are happening rather than this sort of universe you'd like to believe in as real, just sort of unfolding naturally. Um, but yeah, the show's still absolutely unbelievable. And before uh, before I know we're going to talk about it in more detail, and I know you tweeted about this, and I'm sure this is what the Dreamwake fans they will forgive. Okay, me. Um, but just talk me through briefly that relief of because it was so hyped, obviously because of what's happened before and the Briscoes match with FTR recently. When you got like two minutes in, and you were just like, "Oh, it's mint." Yeah, it's mint. Like I tweeted that the best feeling, literally in all of wrestling, is. Because a dream match comes with a sense of anxiety. Yeah. Well, if you're me, who actually suffers from anxiety. <laughs> but there is that. It would be a crushing disappointment, given how much I'm a mark and I've emotionally invested in this match, if it just doesn't click Edge versus AJ Styles. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was never invested in it. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, they did a better version of that match on this show. You thought I was be. invested in it? <laughs> I never was. Never was. <laughs> they did a better uh, version of that match on this Dynamite, which we'll get to imminently. Mm. But yeah, it's just awesome. An awesome feeling of when the first two minutes are just electrifying. Because it's, it's terrifying just, when they go badly, isn't it? Yeah. You get that awful nagging worry that now they've got to turn it round. It's not yeah. just building off the, off the build itself. You can just strap in and just absolutely enjoy it. And I knew this was going to be a classic match when Dax Harwood who is mathematically, according to Andy Murray, literally the best wrestler of the year in 2022. I knew this was going to be a classic when he just got the, um, what's it called? The stuff that comes out during the book's entrance. Oh, yeah, the streamers. The streamers. When he picked them up and just blew his nose with it. That's (laughs) awesome. This is going to be great. Uh, Right, let's start at the beginning of the show, though. Adam Cole versus Christian Cage was our opener. Uh, Quite early on, Adam Cole spitting Christian Cage's face. Um, But Cage, who's got a bit of history with spitting, if I remember rightly, um, doesn't really fall for it in terms of being suckered in. And yes, he does chase Adam Cole around the ring, but he's uh, he's not an idiot. And instead, he just gets his own bike by just hitting him with some... Brutal chops and a larrier, basically. In the end, though, Cole fights back and whips Christian into the steps uh, to take us to commercial. When we come back, uh, Christian sends Cole to the floor and does that dive over the top turnbuckle whilst he stood on it, basically. Uh, hit a sunset flip. That got a near full swing in. DDT gets two more. Uh, goes for another one. Cole counters um, and hits a backstabber. He uh, gets a two count off that. And then Christian cradles Cole for a near full. Hits the reverse DDT. Uh, but Cole rolls out the way of the diving headbutt. Thrust kicks, uh, and he lowers the boom, but he's not lowered the bloody knee pad, has he? So that doesn't get him the match win. Um, Christian hit his over-the-top rope right hand. Cole countered a dive with a super kick for a two-count. The Panama Sunrise gets reversed, and Christian hits a top rope Frankensteiner for two. Uh, Cole super kicks Christian's knee, but he Christian stops the Panama Sunrise Panama. Panama Sunrise from happening. Uh, Cole counters the pump kick, drops the knee pad, uh, but then Christian again counters the uh, boom into a spear for a nice near fall. And then Cole, as he does, just takes a shortcut to get the victory, pokes Christian in the eye, lowers the boom. One, two, three. We'll talk post-match in a second, but uh, what an opener. This is tremendous, and I'll get into why it's tremendous in a bit before I do my very arrogant, this is going to happen, and I will take the victory lap as and when it does. They are going to do a spot. I think, because they've sort of kept this thread dangling from Revolution. I think they're going to do a spot in the Texas Death Match, which got sort of all but announced mm-hmm. um, in the post-match. They're going to do a spot where Adam Cole's going to go and do the boom, realize, hang on, I haven't done the uh, knee pad. Mm-hmm. Like, take the knee pad down, then hit it, 
and then get a 2.9 kick out. Because they've built so intelligently yeah. the idea that it isn't as effective when it isn't like bone-on-bone contact. <laughs> and when it is, after you stopped to realize, oh, hang on, this is how to actually win, it's going to be a, an amazing near fall. Mm. If they don't do that, I'll be surprised because why else would they have kept this threat? twice now, isn't it? Yeah, they've yeah. done it like in the Revolution match and in this one, so I feel like it's going to inform this in like just an exceptional near fall. This match was tremendous. Christian Cage is the pro Okazuchika Ricarda. And what I mean by that is, how long did this go? Oh, I could, what, 10, 15 minutes probably? So we'll say like 12 minutes just yeah. for the sake of whatever, just for the sake of some maths. It's not as if there's eight slow and boring, meaningless minutes no. and then four excellent ones that are sort of just welded onto the end. I don't know what he does, Christian, in these eight minutes to make the last four feel unreal, mm. outstanding, like electrifying. Because again, it's not as if he's just waiting to do stuff. Because if he's waiting to do stuff... Everything that he does in the last four or five minutes of his matches would just feel hollow. It's just pacing. It's the sort of stuff that when people say Christian Cage is an incredible pro wrestling mind and he's got everything to teach multiple new generations of talent because they need to know how to do this now to maximize the dramatic uh, impact of the cool stuff that they can do athletically. And I'm not Christian Cage. I'm not a genius wrestling mind. So I can't really articulate or analyze how he does this. He simply does it, and he can impart these gifts to other wrestlers. Because for six minutes, I wasn't bored, but I was thinking, I was drawn into it, but I'm not thinking this is a classic match. I'm enjoying the story being told. And then it just becomes this absolutely incredible counter-fueled masterclass. Um, I thought this would, this was the match. It's only the match that AJ Styles and Edge could have been. Because, <laughs> my God, like I just thought there's two excellent counter-technician wrestlers against each other, they should be able to do some absolutely wonderful, high-paced stuff that never feels hollow because it's all in the spaces between moves. This is the best version of the WrestleMania match. It was absolutely unbelievable by the finish. And my favorite counter, and there were several, was um, Christian does that sort of twisting, not code red, but like a powerbomb-esque thing when he dives off the ropes. Before you even knew what he was going to do, he just got kicked right in the face. <laughs> Because Adam Cole had scouted him because they're both incredible counter And it wasn't just a flying nothing. No. And there was another one that people confused for a flying nothing. But it was actually Christian Cage doing the sort of uh, jumping uppercut. Mm-hmm. Um, and just a second before his arm was about to get into motion to do the uppercut, he got super kicked in the face again. <laughs> yeah, like, I've, I've got to echo that sentiment entirely because there's not a, there's not been many times in AEW where I've thought, or I've been watching Christian Cage and thought, you've made the wrong choice here. Like, there's a lot of different new opponents from the face. They've clearly got an idea long-term with him and Jungle Boy. So it felt really productive. But it was this match in particular where I felt relieved that he didn't just do what we all would have assumed after that Royal Rumble appearance and just go back for, with WWE where he's kind of been all this time. And because their formula is so locked in now, he would be for, for, like forced to do the hot start, slow it all down, get the heat, come back up for the finish formula that we see over and over and over again when his, as a trained, experienced professional wrestler, is better this is better than theirs. We didn't. And to be fair, AEW does that as well with like younger, more experienced talent because it's, it's a bit of a cheat code, isn't it? You get the hot stuff, you pop the crowd, you get them in, and then it doesn't matter if you lose them temporarily because you know you're bringing them back. They, he never do, He's never enslaved by that in AEW, and he wasn't here. Adam Cole is guilty of that. I think it's a common criticism levied at him, you know, where exactly I think he's just this fantastic 
contemporary counter-wrestling heel, but he's far from universally beloved. Mm-hmm. Christian Cage doesn't have to play by any of those rules. He plays by his own. It's very, not to take away from Adam Cole's effort in this, but it's very clear when you watch a Christian Cage match that you were watching a Christian Cage match. And somebody, a younger wrestler, or somebody like a Cole, who's extremely respectful of everybody else that he works with, just submits himself to it. And getting to watch this happen over and over again, and when it's going to happen with Jungle Boy, like it, it feels nailed on mm. to give Jungle Boy like the, one of the best matches he's ever ever had. This is evidence that that sort of stuff can't really go wrong. So as much as I enjoyed this, I was like in awe. And maybe it's because it's hard to articulate because we're not wrestlers and we don't have the wrestling brain. Maybe it's hard to sort of appreciate at a macro level because you just can't see what it is exactly that it's doing that you can then appreciate it in bigger pictures. I like really enjoyed this, but like y- unique in terms of the typical dynamite hot opener. The irony that Christian has left and gone on to do some great stuff in AEW, whilst Edge has stuck around, and now he's got a blue face. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tweet, that's a tweet, that's a tweet. You should tweet that. I'll tweet that, yeah. That's uh, a great tweet. Anyway, post-match, uh, Red Dragon comes out to, to continue the beatdown on uh, Christian Cage. Jurassic Express make the save, though, and in amongst all this, what's the... Um, Fish and O'Reilly fight off with uh, with Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus. Hangman Page comes out and says uh, about his what's been going on with with him and Adam Cole, and he's made the decision he is going to face Cole uh, for the world title again in a Texas Death Match on AW Rampage, uh, which was going to be in nine days. And uh, he, re- <laughs> he recommended that Cole got his affairs in order. Yeah, tremendous. Um, Hangman Page. Now, like, effectively a Texas Deathmatch veteran in the same way that MJF's a dog-collar veteran. You only need to have one that's sort of banging that leaves memories with people that you then can, like, use as your thing, and it can now be his thing. Um, we got this, I guess, a little bit with Red Dragon too, but I, I think one of the first times that AEW mentioned rankings as, a, as the system they were going to use, and before we knew how this was exactly going to play out, I remember office conversations where we were thinking, well, it's not actually that difficult. A lot of people... Falsely and in bad faith. So, well, that can't work. That's not how wrestling works. It's like, yes, it can. And there's all these ways that can do it. I remember one of the very first sort of pitches was champion pissed off enough to lay out the challenge, regardless of where people are in the rankings. And to be fair, I don't think AEW have played with that too much. Adam Cole, you might remind me, might be number one in the rankings anyway, but that's sort of been rendered irrelevant here with the Red Dragon title match and with Adam Cole. They're getting them because they've gotten under the skin and the champions believe in themselves. And that is just, to me, as valid as a device as somebody having to work their way up. And it feels like a well they've not gone to half as much as, as the challenger, as CM Punk is doing right now, in fact, running through the contenders to get their title shot. So I quite like that. And they've found a way to make this feel interesting again in a way that didn't all of two weeks ago when I was thinking, I think I'd rather have the trios match. I mm. don't know. I, I don't. I genuinely don't. I'd rather see the two separate matches. I was a little bit more lenient on the Cole Page version of this that was duplicated across the night because I don't know what the rankings look like. That in itself is a problem. But Adam Cole narrowly lost a really competitive match at Revolution, and he's since picked up pinfalls over Jungle Boy and Christian Cage, who are big, credible babyface stars. It's absolutely fine. It kind of works in a way that it's not an automatic rematch clause. He's still in the mix, and he's still winning. The Red Dragon one doesn't scan anywhere near as... Um, neatly for me, but the match should be good. Uh, then we got an Owen Hart Foundation tournament qualifier and the AEW in-ring debut of Samoa Joe. Max Castro is a braver man than I am uh, in his rap referencing Samoa Joe being an overweight X-Division wrestler and the fact, of course, he was NXT champion whilst Dynamite beat NXT in the ratings. 
Max, he already wants to murder you anyway. He wants to beat up everyone. Um, so we get that, and then Caster, even more stupidly, gets in Samoa Joe's face, and Samoa Joe just goes, well, I guess I'm going to kill you then. <laughs> That's why exactly what happened. Uh, just batted him, hit him with that suicide dive of his. Uh, yes, there was a, a tiny uh, moment of Caster getting some offense in, thanks to a, an Anthony Bowen's distraction. Um, but the uh, backhand that Caster hit, it was just like, Oh, you've wound him up even more now. Uh, and he takes Caster down with a shoulder block, hits him with a muscle buster. One, two, three. Post-match, uh, we'd had a video beforehand showing what happened at Supercard of Honor with, with Lethal and Joe and, and um, uh, Sanjay Dutt and, um, you know, all that shenanigans, basically. Post-match, Jay Lethal and Sanjay Dutt interrupt, uh, and he said, Lethal, that he changed his outlook following the past week. Uh, he tried to reach out to Joe. He'd called him for months, but apparently Joe only answers for billionaires, and Lethal said that next week he'd get Joe a massive present he would never forget. And I was like, well, that's good copy for the uh, Dynamite <laughs> preview for next week. Um, what did you make of the yeah this this post-match uh, from, from Lethal and Sanjay Dutt? And, uh, well, effectively the squash that was the qualifier. Samoa Joe versus Jay Lethal doesn't interest me one bit, which is weird. In a way, I'm not emotionally invested Jay Lethal for reasons that we've talked about previously. Joe Lethal happens to also be, like, kind of class in yeah. AEW and the match should be great. Um, but I'm still, I'll always sort of reluctantly get into it when I when my mark brain is engaged in the throes of the action. Mm-hmm. Ahead of everything that he does, I can't get into it. And maybe I'm a bad person for getting into it, but like the guy's really talented and I sometimes can't help it. As for the match itself, there were two things I didn't want to see. I didn't want to see some more Joe Cell once. I know that they tend to give Caster quite a bit. He's a project alongside uh, Bowens. I didn't want to see some more Joe Cell one bit. It was absolutely not the time to do it. It's kind of weird that the number one contender for the world title can sell for um, Caster, mm. but it's just it's all about it's character specific, um, context specific. I didn't want to see Joe on this night of all night sell. I didn't want to see him do too much that he can no longer do. He can measure his spots and he measured the suicide dive really well. But I've not really been high on Small Joe for the last however many years. I understand that he's done well, like, remarkably well, really, to preserve his main roster um, aura in WWE because that's the one place where it shouldn't ever happen. He did it. But the NXT stuff, uh, just it soured me on Joe. He used his absolutely incredible body language to do what his physical self no longer can do. And I kind of suspected with it being AEW that they kind of would grasp this. There's not a playbook. They can, they're clever with their book. And I got everything I needed to out of this. And I believe once more in some more Joe because he's a good enough worker. Mm-hmm. The intangibles and the presence to be able to do, to be able to sort of like restore the old myth. Yeah, Joe... Joe's kind of a wizard at this aura preservation stuff. It's it's in a roundabout sort of way. It's like a TNA training school thing because he had to be because they just screwed him up so many times that the trick was, oh, we're gonna have to bring him back again, give him six weeks off, chuck him in a van or something, wipe the penis of paint off his face, and then he's <laughs> he's got to come back and he's got to be some over Joe. But he did that time and time and time again, and this is kind of a latest test of that because I'd never really sold my stock in Joe until the very end, and I just I wasn't really feeling it in NXT. I think probably the AJ Styles program was where I started to doubt what there was really left because the matches were never as entertaining as you saying Wendy Styles and AJ Styles <laughs> voice. AEW a- a- were destined to get everything they possibly could out of Samoa Joe. I will, I will extend that, in fact, to say Tony Carton because he seems to want to do that with Ring of Honor as well, you know, based on exactly where he's debuting him and the immediate overlap that we're getting. 
presenting Ring of Honor almost instantly as a feeder system, and having Joe as the kind of gatekeeper of that feeder system, that suggests that that's you know that he believes that there's still the myth, as Cedric put it, that Joe can have. So I like this, but even within the body of this match, I didn't feel like I was being told to be too worried about Samoa Joe as a title concern in AEW for a very long time. You know, it's there's going to be some um, the overlap now that we're going to get between AEW and Ring of Honor. There's going to be some clunkiness early on as we figure out how all of this is going to work mm-hmm. and how it's going to look across both products, to be fair, not just on Dynamite. Um, and Joe feels like he's going to be the epicenter of that. It's always going to be, right, well, how strong is Samoa Joe? Well, he's Ring of Honor strong, but he's not going to be keeping Hangman Page up at night. And I think that's all right. Uh, you know, there's going to, everybody's going to gradually slot into where they fit. And I would classify this squash of Max Caster as being that for Joe more than us imagining him headlining double or nothing yeah. anytime soon. Hell of a presence, though. I remember in the media scrum following the Supercard when he just said, everyone's on notice. Well, and, that wasn't is, an empty threat. This is Joe, isn't it? He kind of, that Joe's going to kill you chant can only exist if he yeah. still buys into all that, you know? And I think his body language here, that's that's what he does. He knows that that's where the money is and you believe in that Samojo can just tear a company to the ground even if, what, he went like 15 minutes against Killer Cross and it was... Rubbish. It was dire. It was absolutely dire. So yeah, but this I would I would classify most of this as a success. We had the Blackpool Combat Club backstage. Brian Danielson's going to face Trent Beretta, and John Moxley's going to face Wheeler Utah on this week's Rampage. Um, and Moxley said it's going to sound like bones cracking like thunder and raining blood. Uh, we obviously don't look into spoilers, Sige, um, but the the best gauge we often have of this is people saying I can't say much, but. Make sure you watch Rampage this week, and we'll be previewing it, of course, tomorrow. But uh, save, the, save it for then, brother. Exciting, exciting nonetheless. Yeah, ex- hear the buzz exciting around. Exciting noises coming out of Boston. Uh, right, it's wicked pisser. <laughs> we got uh, Sean Spears versus Sean Dean, and uh, oh, what a record Sean Dean's got! Uh, Spears basically, you know, deals with Dean relatively straightforwardly quite early on. He does fight back initially, gets some chops in, but uh, Spears hits the pump handle, neck breaker, and he's got it won, but he's cocky bastard. Uh, he pulls Dean up, um, and he sets him up for the C4, and then we cut backstage. MJF's been on commentary, by the way, throughout this. Uh, we cut backstage, and we see security staff just just strewn everywhere, all laid out. Uh, and then the man who will not be named appeared backstage. <laughs> you want to say who his name is? It's the war dog, Wardlow. Mm. Adam uh, anyway, <laughs> batters more security, continues, walks through a curtain, marches his way down to the ring. There was two massive security guys they had to get eventually in to uh, slowly, along with the numbers of amount of security, slowly overpowered Wardlow and prevented him from getting to the ring. But this distraction served its purpose because it allowed Dean to roll up Sean Spears for the win. MJF apoplectic. We'll talk more about what he said later on. But uh, yeah. Wardlow achieved his purpose. I don't know where to start with how much I adored about all of this, quite honestly. I think I'll start with Sean Dean. We said in the middle of the MJF Punk program when Sean Dean was the one, the, the unlucky recipient, I guess, of the CM Punk attack, but the DQ win, um, that wouldn't be for nothing. And then the feud finished, and it was the one loose thread that was never even loose. And here we are now. They're picking it back up, right? Um, with Sean Dean, they have done the two cliched WWE things, and they've made them earned an awesome the running DQ and the store one surprise roll-up finish and are the best versions of both. They've used the same guy to do it to allow you to draw that comparison and draw that conclusion, and they've done it, and they've both been absolutely class. And it stands to make, maybe not make a star overnight, but make a somebody out of Sean Dean who is going to get loads out of this program. This is going to be the first thing that you remember about his AEW run, no matter what 
happens next. And what is happening next is a pretty big match, you know, like with MJF. So I loved that so much. I love that he's the guy and that we were yet again rewarded. Like, never, ever, ever doubt yourself if you're seeing or thinking there's maybe an extra detail because they have to, and all that's been put there on purpose. This Wardlow thing is all is so simplistic that I'm surprised it's working as well as it is, and yet I'm joyous in the same breath because I just love watching the reaction to this thing. They have already, what, has this been two weeks of this? Already crafted a thing that you wish that you could be live for, which is Wardlow treating security guards like bowling pins. It's the same, it, like, it was so similar this week, only a little bit more violent and a little bit more exciting. That it had more of an impact on MGF as well. Yeah, that it just made you think that they're going to do more and more weeks of it. How many bodies can Wardlow take out? How many, how big can MGF make the barrier just for Wardlow to continue to break it down? Like, it's the simplest stuff. And yet they're just making, makes me feel as a viewer like they're making me ask all the right questions. And it's the, mo- it's the easiest tease. The big guy just wants to get his hands on the little guy. And wrestling has done this over and over and over again for decades at this point. And yet this one is working as well as any. It just speaks to how good the character development was in the middle of the CM Punk program. They are being rightfully rewarded for excellent storytelling. And like sometimes it's just nice to, to cash in, cash your chips in and say, well, look how over we've got Wardlow. He just smashes people until the day that he finally gets them. I don't subscribe to the theory that AEW should do, quote-unquote, show-long hooks. They present fixtures within the sporting emulation. That's how it works. I would genuinely drop a show-long hook as it pertains to this angle, like, over the coming weeks, because it does work. It's really effective, even if WWE takes the piss out of it with the whole... Oh, you get a non-finish to this match, but if you stick around later, you'll get the real finish. I, I hate it so much. And I love that AEW is the sports-based um, company. But there's mileage in this. Mm-hmm. The idea of how can they keep Wardlow out? How can he keep getting in? Just it's Wednesday night, you know what that means? Um, just before we go to the action tonight, uh, just want to tell fans, like, Wardlow's not going to be here and just have, like, a line of security like outside the back sort of entrance to the building or just something like that, and that'll make you realise, oh, hang on, that means Wardlow is coming, but how? That's one way they can get around this and sort of to make it interesting, but I've got full faith mm-hmm. that they've got this plotted out to double or nothing, and it's all going to be perfect. It's just tremendous stuff. This last week was just an illustration of how awesome Wardlow is. It's just killing dudes, and that's why he's so over. This week, it sort of impacts MJF that little bit more, and it affects the the match outcome of his mate. That sort of compels him to issue a challenge like, I've just got no no doubt that this is going to be absolutely incredible week to week. Yeah, exactly. Really excited to see where they go next with this. Uh, best friends are backstage. Um, Chuck Taylor's just just a bit disappointed in Wheeler, Utah. Sorry, one more thing. Call me a hypocrite. I buried and openly mocked WWE's vehicle stuff, right, throughout the build to WrestleMania season. Put Wardlow in some kind of car or some kind of thing, (laughs) and it'll be incredible. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, Chuck wants to talk to Wheeler Yuri. He said, talks about training him, buying his tights, letting him stay with them, basically. And he can be the best wrestler with them. He loves Utah. Trent, not so much. He called him a scumbag traitor. (laughs) So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens following his, uh, I was going to say showdown. I don't know what I don't know what to describe a match with John Moxley anymore as on a, on a show. But whatever happens on Rampage, this obviously leads into it. Yeah, I'll keep it brief because we're going to preview it tomorrow. But fascinating the match placement of the two combat club mm. 
bouts that are set to happen. Like what's the correct way around? You do your opinion. I'll save mine for uh, tomorrow. What of how? Where? Like which? How do you structure rampage? Like do you put well, Danielson and Trent, Trent and then Moxley yeah. Utah? Because one obviously has to inform his decision. Does he go on first? I've got the idea. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I was thinking off the back of this. The best friends as a group gonna split or turn. Like, will Danhausen split off to Hook? Uh, Chris Statlander's already kind of moving away from the alien persona herself. Orange Cassidy's on the shelf, and almost like with him as the heart of all of this anyway. Like, are these gonna just? Are they gonna become heels as a result of this? You know, like because. You'd, uh, Chuck Taylor's a great heel. Yeah. Like, Chuck Taylor used to make a sport out of making kids cry. Like, he's got <laughs> it, it And it's about goddamn time as well. It feels it, doesn't it? I, I, I thought this was quite a nice development because you, as I was saying this, like, you, as me, the Blackpool Combat Club, it is a bit disloyal to the best friends, but all of us were wanting him to do it because we were putting ourselves in this position, like, well, I'd pick them 10 times out of 10. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of, it's quite nicely worked out that this could be the best friends turning. And I think that, like, Injects a bit of interest into them as an act. I think they're a, they're a more fascinating prospect in AEW now, looking at the landscape of the tag division. I think they're just going to kind of go their separate ways. I think, as in everyone in it, mm. not just you. Yeah. I think you is going to go off and do that. I think Statlander's fine on her own, to be perfectly honest. Cassidy's injured right now. I don't know what you do with Chuck Taylor, but I, I think Trent obviously has to be here. I think it works far, yeah. far better. I don't know whether you know you just Chuck just goes away for a while or whatever it may be. But yeah, I don't see well you, the you things are. Open and shut case, like you say. Yeah. Of course, you want to hang out with those guys, and especially now he's the what is it, the pure champion in Ring of Honor. Yeah, um, which again, like uh, more of this sort of like this Tony Khan, obviously shifting focus to his guys as he's got a right to do. It's his company now, um, but yeah, like how they'll how they'll overlap these things. Um, the, the prospect of him using his wrestling acumen for the other show mm. while remaining a member of like the Blackpool Combat Club suggests that you would have stables being able to overlap and that is so cool as well like inter federation inter stable rivalries that can cross over to do mix and match matches is a, a total new spin on the stable booking that they used in the AEW potentially inspired yeah we'll, we'll talk more about this on uh, on the rampage preview of course tomorrow uh we see footage of Kingston Santana and Ortiz just battering uh, the Jericho appreciation Society, just kicking their ass backstage Eddie Kingston threw an entire telly at them uh, and they hightail it out. They jump into a car and drive off and Kingston just grabs a mic. Very sort of good stuff, this, in terms of he openly said, oh, who needs bloody ring music? Just give him a mic. He said, he, it's like basically, he's like, he says, like, yeah, but he's not saying it's like get people's attention. He's just making sure the mic's on <laughs> so he can start ranting as he walks down to the ring. Um, calls out Jericho, calls him a two-faced coward, uh, and he says to to Jericho and his boys, basically, on site, anytime I see you, it's on, basically. Whether you're with your wife and the kids, uh, I'm going to attack you. The other two morons, he says, on site. Garcia, he says, my man, uh, I know where you live. I'll show up to your house, on site. Uh, Santana says uh, that they are the, the Jericho Bitch Society. Um they better bring the hardest fights. Uh, they, so they're going to bring the hardest fights to these dogs because that's what they do. Uh, and uh, Ortiz tells Jericho when he grows a pair and stops running, comes to New Orleans next week for a six-man. Uh, regardless, on site. And Kingston concludes by saying they're going to beat that ass like junkyard dog and Butch Reed style, basically. Oh, this is fire. This is absolutely great. Uh, Eddie Kingston on literally every level is the last real one. He's the most yes. incredibly mm -hmm. authentic human being. And he... It's just so perfect. If you look at various anecdotes from his time in AEW, 
He's, he hates sports entertainment. He's the guy who, when remember when Kenny Omega tried to make an impromptu match when he had that... It's ridiculous how they never paid it off for the Kingston Omega match. I'll bury that again right now. Mm-hmm. But to build this match, that never actually happened. Um, Kenny Omega sort of tried to do an impromptu match between, um, oh, you can face someone from the Elite, and it's Michael Nakazawa. <laughs> they were really funny, and Eddie Kingston was like, no, this isn't sports entertainment. You don't have the power to do this. And they basically shone a light on how terrible that trope is. And he beat up Nakazawa, but not in a match. When, in a more real level, when um, he worked the Cody match as part of the TNT Open Challenges debut, he was asked, like, also, oh, like, have you got music sorted? And he's like, oh, why would I have music? I'm not contracted to the organization. I will just come out with a microphone, tell my story, and why I'm sort of arrived without any contract, without any of the attendance sort of, we need assets for you, we need music, we need shoots. I'm not under contract. This isn't happening. So for him to just start fights before the show begins because he doesn't see it as a show, it's real to him. And it was like an earlier in the night thing just worked so perfectly for Eddie Kingston. And he's not an idiot who walks around with a kendo stick that he has inexplicably acquired. He gets the closest thing that can cause damage in his hand. And it's telly. And it's a great visual. And Eddie Kingston's the best. And there was a callback to it MJF later with the interview in front of a broken television. Yes. Lovely stuff. Yeah, I like stuff like that. I really appreciate it. It's that. really nerdy, thoughtful detail. <laughs> yeah. It's good, though, isn't it? You know, um, like we always praise peak era WWE they were great for things like that if there was a little bit of the set that had been damaged it would stay that way and you were just glad of it you know it felt real um, I, I love uh, Chris Jericho's penchant in AW in particular for I think you compared it once to like 80s movie villains like cheese it it's been, cheese it's been yeah. off in cars yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's the third time he's done it I think that I can remember he did it once with Inner Circle the MJF one MJF one's this. the best yeah. like, when they like when Pause it. Pause it. out the window. Get out of here. Let's scram. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, and it fits these guys perfectly. Um, Eddie King, I was rem- I was reminded of this, of that week, where Eddie Kingston was eating, and 2.0, as they were then, uh, came and just hassled him, either side of him having his dinner, to where we are now. Of just He arrives at work and lobs a telly off their heads. <laughs> Brilliant. Like, this is all great. You totally believe in the uh, Kingston-Santana and Ortiz union. You almost can't wait to see the two people that want to join them in a fight when we have the inevitable five and five. That is pretty cool to speculate on and think about as as who you can open this up to. It's a really, really heated rivalry um, that feels so perfectly leveled for Eddie Kingston to win, as uh, we've said this before, as the the one step to the AEW title, you know, the one step mm-hmm. to that match that he's still yet to have. He's competed on pay-per-view for all three AEW titles. I don't, I don't think there's anybody else in AEW that's done that, and he's lost all three. And yet, in any given pay-per-view cycle, he kind of feels like the guy that you want to get there all over again. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Then we got a video package uh, recapping the history between Hook and the man that is very nice, very evil, my wife, uh, Danhausen, the curse that just doesn't affect him, basically. Um, I did like, was it a, a clip I saw? I can't remember if it was from Rampage or just like an, an online clip of him doing it and just looking at his hands <laughs> like, what? It's not working. It's just completely thrown by someone who just is completely unaffected by it's the curse. It's a perfect use for Danhausen because the people who like Danhausen still have a reason to like Danhausen, and the people who think it's pretty rubbish and doesn't fit into the AEW universe, it actually doesn't. Just great booking, realistically. Out comes Jay Cargill and Mark Sterling. Uh, she introduces her new baddie section in the audience and makes sure the cameraman does his job and shows them. Uh, Sterling had a nice line. Really difficult to find good-looking people in Boston, but thankfully Jade managed to do it. That got a great reaction. Um, but he says one person not invited to the baddie section baddie section is Marina Shafir. Uh, and he says, let's just address her as number 30. And uh, Jade says she's tired of all these MMA losers coming into... Uh, all these wrestling rejects coming into her ring on her show. She says Marina Shafir talks about herself as the problem. Well, I am the problem solver. Great line. Jade Coghill's absolutely awesome. She's a t-shirt generating megastar at this point. And I kind of took this maybe as an indirect hint that they are going to run. And I'm not sure. It's one of those things like, how good of an idea is this? Because I'm not sure. Maybe they'll do Jade Coghill versus Paige Van Sand. On one level, it's a great idea. You've got two like, legitimate and very different non-wrestling ways. So it's a unique attraction. But who's going to like sort of hold the other's hand and create a good match out <laughs> of it? So that's a bit of a concern. Page fans, that might be awesome. Basically, if you're athletic and you've never been in wrestling and you, have a, <laughs> and you have a public profile, the lesson we've learned over the past week is that you're just automatically going to be awesome at this. Um, so that is a potential direction. And if it's the case, what a wonderful means of turning Jade Cargill, the baby face that everyone already wants mm-hmm. her to be, they finally found someone who wants to play babyface against Jan Lambert. <laughs> How did it take this long? How did it take this bloody long? Can we talk quickly? Because I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I even wrote it down when it happened about that. And I think to be fair, it was probably only picture in picture 
we watch it on fight, so we get to see it. The uh, Sammy Guevara take on T flip cards thing. They're absolutely insufferable. Absol- <laughs> absolutely insufferable. And I can scarcely believe that the company who, in addition to promoting an almost all time out of a dynamite, that had the thought to just do the little detail with the telly that just creates these deft dovetailing storylines can be so pig shit thick to think that Sammy Guevara and Tay Conti, who do nothing except brag about how incredible their lives are on social media and tell absolutely terrible jokes, are in any way remotely baby faces. It is absolutely staggeringly stupid. And did you hear this? Did you watch it on fire or did you... No, I don't. Uh, they got booed out of the building. Yeah. They got booed out that of the... That was horrific as well. It wasn't even like, oh, it's good power, but... Terrible yeah. jokes. And then, because he's an idiot, Sammy Guevara is probably going to neck on with her anyway because I don't know if you know this guy, but he's like, he's f***ing a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely f***ing her pussy raw if you didn't know this. He starts getting off with her when he gets the booze. And it's like, I don't think you realise this, Sammy. But all of the uh, the guys in the audience resent you because they wish they were smashing it. Go any day of the week and you, <laughs> you, you see them wanting to hang out the back of it. And that's what <laughs> they want to do. These are not nice people, probably, but that's what they want to do. You're doing it and they hate you for doing it. Be smarter. I, Be I smarter. F- honestly, I would believe it more that a heel would spend time over the weekend before a Raw creating their own video package. So like, can we just run the footage? Like, I can believe that more than I can. Sammy Guevara and Ty Conti, back, Ty Conti backstage, writing plop on a piece of card. And uh, one thing is something I can suspend with this belief more than the other, and it shouldn't be that way around. I'm going to regurgitate my theory because it was once um, Cody and Brandy, and that obviously cannot be the case anymore. I am starting to genuinely believe, and I think I've got a strong case that AEW intentionally do one bad thing to take the focus away from everything else. If you think something is a six out of ten in AEW, you're going to think it's a ten against the thing they are willing, willfully doing as the one. Sammy Guevara and Ty Conti. AEW, your segments become less crap. Exactly that. There has been something every year of this company's existence. Like we were on my hardest case for the longest time. Like, have you been on it once since these two started coming out every week? <laughs> that will be like, Well, I mean, he's not, <laughs> he's not gonna have a, he's not gonna have a great week this week, but that's. Genuinely, not a stupid thing to say, Hamlet, right? <laughs> the writers, uh, Trey Parker and Mott, uh, Matt Stone, have got the famous anecdote when they were asked, like, how did you get some of that away? How do you get away with some of the stuff you did in the South Park movie? Like, it's ridiculous how, like, you didn't get the NC, whatever. Yeah. And said, all right, what we did was we intentionally wrote between five and ten. The number doesn't matter. We wrote five jokes that was so unspeakably offensive and horrible and no way they would ever get in. Like, mean spirit. It's like, this is the worst horrible thing. Because we knew the censors would go, right, that, you cannot allow that. You're absolutely not allowed yeah, that. Yeah. You're not allowed to say yeah. that. You're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to say that. And then because they were so horrible by design, they just didn't notice, like, Saddam Hussein. Got like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Pick master floppy cock. <laughs> a good assessment. It's a good theory. There's always <laughs> been That's one. legitimate. There's, yeah, there's always been one since they started. There's always been something that everybody rounds on. And then you might watch the rest of Dynamite and think, well, it's all great apart from that one thing. That's mm. the only thing you remember to yeah. be terrible when sometimes there's stuff that's only middling. In summary, Jake Hoggle's great. She's uh, class. Yeah. MJF and Sean Spears are backstage next to the broken telly. Uh, MJF saying that he worked, walked, worked in a circus and stormed off when he noticed that. Um, but uh, yeah, he says not to say that the 
the man who shot me, not, not me name's name, basically. Um, and uh, they say, I pray that you show up next week. There's going to be twice as many security guards, which, again, is led screens to the steel theory, Sige. Um, and as far as, as far as Sean Dean, uh, MJF's going to face him next week, and he mocks his whole captain shtick and then says, it's going to be a purple heart for you because I'm going to injure you more than anyone else could in combat. But a Lovely image, that, isn't it? A fantastic line, the sort of the perfect line for an MJF to use as well. Again, there's a such a real, like, really careful detail about MJF's TV matches about how he only works the bare minimum because he's contractually obligated. MJF throwing out a challenge can't just be you can't just toss that sort of thing off. You know, it's not mm. what he does as a as a character as a wrestler. It's not a cack. <laughs> the one guy he's picked to do this is the one guy that's won by DQ and surprise roll up. So even when he's, I'm going to throw out a challenge, I'm going to wrestle on television. It's the closest it can to one of his jobber matches. But so it's, it, it, I just thought, so I'm sorry to jump ahead right. to next week's preview. Sean Dean winning via count out next week then? I mean, it's one of the things left, isn't it? As MJF scarpers because Wardlow's brought through the latest security detail. Maybe. Great stuff though. Uh, right, Sige, let's get to this. Oh, Hardy's Tables match, which gets me so excited. And then we have to talk about what happens because it's got, they got so into the, is it into the weeds? Is that the, the phrase? It just, they overcomplicated this with rules. They faced the Butcher and the Blade in a tables match. And the rules were, you, you get put through a table when someone hits an offensive maneuver on you. So if you like fall through a table or in Big Show's case, step through a table, for example, mm-hmm. that does not count. But then it was also weirdly complicated where it was like you're eliminated from the match if you're put through a table. But then in the finish, that didn't really matter. I'll run through what happened and, and then you can have your way with it, uh, Sige. They brawl to start off on the outside. Uh, Blade beats down Jeff in the ring. Jeff dodges a sh- shoulder tackle, though, and Blade falls through a table that's been propped up. But that doesn't count because it's not an offensive maneuver. Uh, Hardy's hit a double Jesus DDT Christ. on the Butcher. Butcher sets up a table. Uh, Jeff sets up to dive through it. But Blade pops up and push- pushes him down, and he goes through the table. And I think that counted, even though the table was a bit in a, it was a weird position and it's only sort of broke. But I think that counted because it was an offensive maneuver. Um, they go to break. They come back. Matt drives Butcher through a table with an elbow drop. That means Butcher is eliminated, possibly alongside Jeff Hardy. But, you know, he's Butcher, so he just doesn't care. So he carries on, and him and Blade um, uh, beat, beat him up, basically. Uh, Butcher and Blade try to superplex Matt through a table at ringside. They've been brawling around there. But as they go to do that, it's disappeared because Jeff has moved it out of the way. Uh, and then they both hit Blade with a twist of fate. Jeff pulls a ladder, a huge ladder for, out from under the ring, climbs it, uh, and they uh, they put Blade on two tables. And Jeff Hardy swanton bombs onto Blade to put him through it. And that wins the Hardys the match. There was stuff in the post-match. AHFO come out. Stink uh, interrupts to, to stop them from just murdering the Hardys, basically. And Andrade uses the bunny as a shield, which I quite liked. But, yeah, it just needlessly complicated, and it sort of ruined the match. It was embarrassing on every level, this. Absolutely every level. I I didn't have as much of a problem with the clear miscommunication between the talent and the commentary team as I did the finish, and I'll get to that shortly. Yes, what happened was that you, both members of the team, have to be put through the table to win. Don't mention the word elimination once. Everyone gets that. They can still participate in the match. It's not an elimination match. It's not called a tag team elimination match. It's called a tag team tables match. Everyone knows how the rules work. 
you have to explain it to people because this is the first tag team tables or yeah. even the singles tables yeah, yeah. involved Matt Hardy because of course it did. <laughs> um, I get the rules and they made me not get them, which was just stupid. The worst offence of this match is that it was criminally dull and it was you can't control what happens with the table. So when it just sort of the legs went out underneath it rather than a nice satisfying crunch, it was like, oh, well, technically, yes. Table broke. Someone got put through it. It's so ridiculous. So you didn't get the f- pleasing cr- noise. <laughs> so that means it doesn't count. Like <laughs> yeah. you can't. You didn't s- get the fake bit. Yeah, so. <laughs> you, d- uh, you can't really do it like that. This was just so dull, so lethargic. Like the, the Hardy Boys are completely thrashed. And I generally thought the most embarrassing thing was they tried very much to mirror the famous Jeff Hardy spot from WrestleMania 17. The exact like side by side tables, the height of the ladder. And my God, it took them forever to do it. And it was like, when you're trying to rip something off iconic, it's like UK Leisure Centre Undertaker stuff for me. This was absolutely, <laughs> it took them forever to get there. Butcher, poor guy who had to sell for ages. I was like, wait, it's like, just completely broke my immersion. So I'm thinking, you could probably get up given what I know the damage of this sort of spot would usually do, but you can't because it's the finish. And it was like, it was less climb the ladder, kid, make yourself famous and more climb the ladder, mate, I'm bored. I'm bored. One more thing. That spot was such a desperate, like, almost sad reach for something that he used to be able to do. That Have you ever seen that cult? Yeah, I know he has. That cult-level famous gif of the honky-tonk man working the absolute dismal recesses of the indie scene. No. And he won't even bump to do his own finish. So, you know the old honky-tonk man yeah, yeah. finish? He, he just does it on his knees. Just doesn't want to bump on. He just want to take a flat back. So he kind of does it like it's pathetic. That was closer to what Jeff Hardy did than WrestleMania 17. Yeah, he was up there so long it looked more like he was going to fall off, didn't it? Like that. Even when he stands still for the dramatic moment, it kind of like requires a bit of pace and a bit of speed to make it feel special. Otherwise, it's like the longer you stand there, the more you might just teeter and totter and come all the way down. This was a disaster because it was crap more than it was. Like I, yeah, I had more issue with just how poorly worked this was. Maybe. They were distracted. Maybe, like, the the rules confusion and them being in their own heads about making sure that it made sense when it didn't and when that there was a complete disconnect with the announcers that ruined it, too. But And, and maybe that ultimately got to the wrestlers themselves, and that was what... We couldn't them. hear it. They've got no excuse. The no, not, got not, not excuse that, for this. them maybe not being clear on themselves as they were going to the ring maybe made the whole thing a bit foggy for them as they were working it, regardless of what the commentator was going to say. But I just thought it was, it was worse because it was bad. Like, if this match had been... If this match had had two or three moments that just had you jumping out your seat and popping, then I think you wouldn't have forgiven the the problems with its presentation. But you would have said, yeah, but look when they do that. Mm. What it would have looked like would have been a near miss or what shame. And you couldn't even come away with that. You couldn't come away particularly really with sympathy for the wrestlers, a little bit for the more for the butchering the blade than for the Hardys. Just a, yeah, a, a, a real disaster. The type of which you're getting less and less of on mm. these dynamites. So I wonder if this is... Maybe the fact that this was so pronounced um, as a failure that maybe it's ultimately long-term going to be lead to them scaling back the hardest. They've got a few nice moments out of the Hardy Boys already. That's no bad thing. Like Maybe you start now scaling them back and you start thinking about exactly how you're going to use them because, what, we've already had the cool arena brawl thing. Like Jeff Hardy and Matt Hardy, as the, Jeff's return, meme-worthy as it was, the music was cool for people. You've kind of already got a lot out of the Hardys comeback that you don't need to keep 
pushing them so mm. relentlessly and then ruin what you've created. They should have waited a while for this, if not for their physical well-being and the fact that they need way more time to recover from this sort of thing than in years past. But it's just flat and boring. Even before like it got really boring, it just felt like an, a dose of nostalgia one too many. It's a lesson that we've had time and time again with the Hardys. The Hardy Boys will not be the ones to tell you a bit too much of us. Like you've got to be the one, or like whether it be the gimmicks or just how much you're using the characters, they won't be the ones. Jeff Hardy won't be the one to tell you, I don't think you should uh, book me in a Tables and Ladders match this week. <laughs> That's the, we've been, we've been yeah. showing that for 20 years. Uh, well, we've got Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus backstage very briefly with Christian Cage, who's just fu- furious. He chucks his water bottle, he storms off, and, and Jungle Boy announces that despite the fact that Red Dragon hadn't really earned a championship match, they're getting one. Uh, and they challenge them to a match going forward. A bit of a repeat of what we mentioned earlier on Hamlet. It just pisses me off this. Sorry, I know you just threw it a Hamlet. Right. Anyone could do this. Yes, the WWE problem where anyone can attack anyone. That's the big plot hole. Akira Tozawa, if he so desired, in WWE, could go and sort of hit Roman Reigns at the back of the chair. And because it's WWE, the rules stipulate, the narrative rules stipulate that he gets a match. That doesn't happen because it's ridiculous. But it could because it's ridiculous. And you get this ridiculous paradox and endless questions about plot holes and all the rest of it. Less of this in AEW, please. See, I really like this. So you almost never get it. So it tells me that Jungle Boy and uh, Luke Soros, but specifically Jungle Boy, and especially because Christian Cage has lost the match and they've been rattled, it's kind of lost his head a little bit. And he's off like... That was somewhat deft. Dishing out, well, and I think there's more to it as well. So I think they've, like, dished out the challenge. It's a Jungle Boy Christian Cage thing, this. This title match is happening because they've gotten to, like, Christian Cage has lost the match. They've gotten to them as an act. They've created a little bit of dissension or a little bit of uncertainty when otherwise they've been solid as a rock lately. And they've, like, they've chipped away at something here. Like, whether it was less so from stealing the belts, more from everything else that's happened since. But they have. It's worked. The Undisputed Era's little plan has kind of been effective here. And they've got a title match. They need all the title match out of the inexperience and the over-exuberance of Jungle Boy more than it would be what a... MJF would never dish his title match out, you know? Um, and Hangman Page now, you could sort of question, like, Hangman Page's choice to go with Jurassic Express over the Dark Order for everybody involved. It's not really worked out that well. And Hangman Page's whole issue used to be, I'm, I'm poison. It leaks out and it affects everybody. It's affecting Jurassic Express, too. Things like Things have not gone their way, particularly... Since the real toxic mist, <laughs> the real toxic juice is what is the sweat that pours out of Hangman Page, whether he wants to have it or not, is another British bulldog. <laughs> but like, yeah, the Dark Order uh, kind of in, like left a little bit uncertain of what they're going to do with themselves because they're without him, and it's not gone so great for Jurassic Express, and that's something that you could potentially leave just hanging. And uh, as I said with Sean Dean, a million other examples, pick which one. Now it's ever wasted. I, I genuinely think there's a lot of little ways that you can spin off this, and I'll, I welcome it every now and then as a subversion of the team wins eight matches. Because now, Red Dragon getting that shot of the pay-per-view and then getting another go at the belts doesn't... To me, it doesn't feel quite as fake as it did two or three weeks back. We had a video package to uh, announce that it's going to be Thunder Rosa versus Nyla Rose uh, for the uh, title at Bell of the Beats. And uh, a brief moment backstage with Jamie Hayer and Tony Storm uh, talking about them being the first two entrants in the Owen Hart tournament and Hayer hopes they face each other in the later rounds. And then we got a qualifier for that. Uh, it was Hikari Shida versus Julia Hart. Uh, Doku, Julia Hart, and uh, more, more and more we've seen. And she's still got the eye patch on, and she attacks Sheeta before the bell and chokes her with her varsity jacket. And the varsity blondes are like, no, Julia, this isn't you. And she goes, I'll piss off. 
get out of here. She doesn't want them. She doesn't want them at ringside. She sends them to the back. Um, she just starts fighting back though. Counters a cartwheel kick, rising knee. Uh, she goes out to the floor and hits that drop kick, jumping off the chair. Um, but Hart cuts her off upon coming up back into the ring. Hits a DDT to take us to the break. Sheeta comes back, hammer fist, vertical suplex, nice outside in suplex for a two count. Hart, though, goes for Sheeta's eyes. She gets a two count off the back of a bulldog following that. But then Sheeta avoids a top rope dive, elbow smash, Tamashi, Falcon Arrow, one, two, three. Hikari Sheeta qualifies for the tournament. I like this so much more than I thought I was going to ahead of the show. It wasn't blow away great. The match wasn't great. Um, some of Hikari Sheeta's strikes looked pretty tremendous because sometimes she can not really lay it in too strong. She did here. I know what they want to do with Julia Hart. They want a pretty blonde girl who they're going to make like the goth and they're very slowly transforming her disposition and her look. Eventually she's going to be like an all black and people are going to think it's great. Not me necessarily. I'm not into goth stuff, but they're doing a good version of something I'm not necessarily into. I want to put over Julia Hart's um, body language here. She's not playing this corny at all. She's not acting too mean too quick. I liked a little, she's like got a sullen quality about her. I liked the sort of dismissal. It was almost like Riley amusing. I'm not not into any of this. And I kind of, I don't know how. Mm. Yeah, I agree, actually. I like Christian's dark hearts. I like Julia's dark hearts. I want to uh, see the, the, when they did the house, of, like the house of black toxic mist stuff, I, my opinion was we've put her in there now. Like this is where we're going, so just, just do it. Turns out she's got the chops to sort of make this last a little bit longer. And the varsity blondes are the exact kind of stupid losers that you kind of want to see get binned <laughs> yeah. off in this exact manner. So everybody is, whether by accident or design, has sort of been cast in the right roles for this to have a bit more juice than I would have initially thought, um, even if she does just join them. It, it went better than I thought. The, the match was what it was. It didn't seem to be on the same page at points. I yeah, I, I wasn't mega high on the match. I, um, I need Deben Sheeda to really bang as well. I want. I want to feel. Oh yeah, there's. I forgot to mention there was a standoff post post match. Serena Deeb's music plays, and she's got a kendo stick, and she does. No, she has got a kendo stick, and Deeb's got a chair. It's it's the usual criticism. Truthfully, um, this one's had lots of focus. It has, but they did hit pause on it again, and it does stall things, and it does slow things, and it does drain you of your kind of your emotional investment. They're going to come together. I hope it absolutely rules for the benefit of both of them. Um, but I wasn't quite there attempt to sell it as legacy as they would do in many of the men's rivalries feels more forced because of the fact that they kind of just are stop start with it sometime you two have been so good on the podcast now we're going to finish up by giving you your two favorite things so you're going to get to talk about ftr first and the young books and that insane main event and hopefully you're going to get to talk about keith lee pouncing someone through a wall swerve strickland's getting interviewed he's been seen at the grammys uh, but he said he's not forgotten about his issues with Ricky Starks, but he's got stuff to do. And as he walks off to go backstage, he gets jumped by Starks and Powerhouse Hobbs. But in comes Keith Lee, uh, who, yeah, pounces Hobbs through a wall. And it was, you know, may well have just been a wall that they built. But do you remember was it Wardlow and Hager, where they just had this clearly fake wall that they yes. did some gimmick with? Clearly fake pig. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Glossy pig. <laughs> they... Uh, they did, so, when when ha- Powerhouse Hobbs got Panzer all, there was someone like on the other side of it <laughs> doing something, I don't know, which which I thought really added to it. But yes, you've been campaigning for a Keith Lee pounce ever since he, I know he's done stuff in the ring, but like this, I mean, ever since he popped up in AEW. At this point, based on this wall, and based on the um, the flag the other week, like they, and I think it's probably Tony Khan, they're watching that gif 
over and over again in the darkened room of him pouncing Adam Cole and just looking at it and thinking, challenge accepted. And they're like, they're, they're doing hold my beer and they're going to keep going until they get it. And I, for one, welcome it because they're absolutely fantastic. They want to create a visual with Keith Lee as incredible as that one because as awesome as Keith Lee is, um, there will be obviously certain, his matches are being scrutinized in a way that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with because I think they're, they're, they're pretty great. But people are looking for, well, has he still got it? Like physically, where's he at? All that kind of thing. So in the meantime, they're going to say, well, his visuals are always awesome in NXT. Like, as long as you're not setting a contract on fire and asking him to sell getting burnt in the face. Like, his visuals are incredible. So they're just going to do loads of them, and I'm here for it. He's as good doing that as he is in his matches because he can't... He's not always going to be able to do something as physically jaw-dropping in the body of a match, but play with the scenery, play with the sets, have heels scarpering for him because he can just he's this human bulldozer like figure and he can do things with people's bodies in terms of chucking <laughs> them around that a lot of people can't it's i can't remember aw doing this too much with their hosses either and this is them positioning keith lee as a hoss for the outside the ring stuff and then the like the hybrid worker in ring they've always got hosses right man remember lance archer putting that geek's head through the ceiling <laughs> <laughs> god damn awesome uh, right, let's talk main event, Sige. Uh, we had uh, Ring of Honor, Ring announcer Bobby Cruz do the introductions for FTR versus the Young, Bu- Young Bucks with both the Ring of Honor tag team titles and the AAA tag team championships on the line. Um, early on, Nick gets frustrated. Nick Jackson throws his headband at Dax, who, yeah, a bit like he did with the streamers early on, has his way with it, puts it in his trunks and then chucks it at Matt Jackson, who's just disgusted. Uh, there's a face-off between all four of them. There's a big hockey fight, basically, in the, begin- in the beginning of the match. Um, FTR put the Young Bucks in simultaneous sharpshooters. There was also a Bret Hart sign, guys. Um, but the Young Bucks fight out of it, shenanigans, um, and they isolate Cash and hit simultaneous inseguries on him. We go to the break. When we come back, they've, they've concentrated their attacks on, da- on Cash and made sure he can't get to Dax. Uh, but it looks like Cash is finally going to make the hot tag to Dax Harwood. He trips up Nick. He sends Matt out there. But as he goes to tag in Dax, uh, Nick super kicks Dax off the apron, which was great. Timing. Jesus oh, Christ. Spot on. Uh, miscommunication with the Young Bucks. Uh, Matt runs face first into a barricade. Cash gets ta- finally gets the hot tag to Dax, and he just runs wild, suplexing Bucks onto each other. Uh, he cradles Matt for two, and they exchange some tr- cradles. He hits the stuffed pile driver. That gets a near fall. Cash suplexes Nick's, Nick on the apron as Dax sweeps out Matt's legs on the top turnbuckle. He hits the powerplex, but then Nick gets involved to stop the uh, uh, follow-up. Uh, there's a springboard top rope Frankensteiner as a result. Uh, Nick gets in his uh, signature run of offense, but Dax manages to turn the br- uh, moonsault into a brain buster on the floor. Cash hits a gory bomb for a near fall. The uh, official gets distracted, so the Bucks manage to hit Cash with a low blow, and they hit him with a big rig, but it uh, doesn't doesn't do the uh, appropriate amount of damage, but it was a great near fall. 450 moonsault combo from the Young Bucks gets another fantastic near fall. Uh, Nick goes for one of the title belts, the Ring of Honor title belts. Dak tries to pull it from him. Cash tr- cradles Matt for a near fall, but then Cash takes a belt shot. Matt rolls him up and gets a big old handful of tights. Dax has to dive in to break it up for a near fall. Uh, the Bucks then just get rid of Dax with double super kicks. They uh, hit the BTE trigger on Cash, but as they get the three... Cash's foot falls onto the top rope and the official waves off his count. They set up for the Meltzer driver, but Dax interrupts it. FTR 
uh, hit their slingshot powerbomb tombstone thing instead. Then they hit a BTE trigger, give Matt a lovely kiss on the cheek each, and uh, hit him with a big rig. One, two, three, FTR win. They retain all the tag team title belts, and they conclude a great dynamite with a sensational main event. Yes, it's absolutely incredible. Incredible match, total classic. And the best thing about it, and it seems ridiculous given your rundown, which was great as always, this was their version of, let's save something for the pay-per-view or for the bigger mm. match or for the rubber. <laughs> and it was still incredibly action-packed. <laughs> yeah. They still haven't hit the Melter Driver or done a save with the Melter Driver. They are saving that, the save or the finish. This is a match that was absolutely incredible, Everything was timed to perfection. The audience was totally and utterly white hot, and yet this was still their version of that will save a little bit. Mm. Just absolutely unbelievable stuff. Like, what I loved about it as well, there's so much. This is going to be very scattered. Dax Harwood's hot tag was absolutely tremendous. There was an emotional resonance to this match as well, and that was incredible. Like, when they set up the Young Bucks, that is, Cash Wheeler in the, uh, just before the BTE trigger, I was kind of thinking, I don't. <laughs> yeah. I don't want you to. Like, I've been worked into really wanting the baby faces, FTR of all tag teams, to win this match. I was thinking, is there a way we can get out of this? I know. Like, no, we've got, got his arms. It's going to be the meeting of the minds with the knee, yeah. Like, the facial expressions were great. The timing of the cutoffs was great. And, like, again, the Young Bucks do this thing that they do, and it's unbelievable. And I think... I don't think this is quite the young best Young Bucks match I've ever seen. But the bar's ridiculously high. That doesn't detract from the classic, instant classic status of this match anymore. But the Young Bucks, my favorite thing about their work is that they get me, even in their four-star matches, which is their worst matches somehow, they get me with a twist. I don't know how they can do this every time where it goes, like the dramatic momentum swings like a vibration, much less sort of a pendulum where it's so close to getting the win and then losing. It just makes my heart race every single time. This inspiration of the spot, where they're about to do the Melter Driver, gets caught mid-flip into the slingshot powerbomb, and you think, oh, no, no they're going to lose a nanosecond after you thought they were going to win. Mm -hmm. It's just genius match construction, a genius ability to generate white-hot noise. You would... Trying to think, other than Omega, and this is why he is so bonded with the elite, is there a single act in professional wrestling, whether it's Reseda Hall to a gigantic stadium or to this sort of TV-sized arena where the young books don't generate the loudest atmosphere of the night? And they do it because they have such an ability to manipulate the crowd with, you know it, crowd psychology to get them manipulated into believing things are going to happen and then subverting it with something thrilling. And the way that they subvert it is with the coolest moves you've ever seen. Just the last three minutes of this reminded me in a weird way of Paige versus Omega at Full Gear, where you kind of knew that they were going with the baby faces to win, but they just made you want to see it. Just unbelievable stuff. The coolest moves you've ever seen is why idiots believe that they're spot monkeys. Yeah. That's what it is. I, like, I was thinking about that a lot in this match, is that every exchange was incredible. Every exchange between the teams is incredible, and yet they were working to the like the sort of traditional rules of a tag team match. FTR, um, they're taking a bump. My goddamn life! What the hell do I know? But FTR for me have leveled up since they stopped trying to 
pay such earnest tribute to matches of the past and just going back to having matches that are echoes from the past but have been modernised as they did as the revival against the Alphas and against DIY. And they're doing it now and they're just they're so locked into that that they, they kind of miss at the moment. Like, I really enjoyed them baby-facing themselves against the, the gun club in that same context. And that wasn't, you know, that's like, that's a distinct third from the three matches they've had in the last seven days. Um, they were, they made you believe, they wrestled once in Ring of Honor and they made you believe that they were fighting for its very soul over the course of this match by trying to defend its titles in the in the style and the way they chose to work as these like as as the the baby faces you know um the the rev- the young bucks taking the revivals cut off spot with that apron super kick that was always the revival trick right ftrs as well sorry but the ftr trick of like that cut off mm. that super kick one was their version of an ftr spot in a way, I mean, Cedric have always disagreed. In the office, because we talk about it like nerds, always disagreed about that, <laughs> that first Young Bucks FTR match. Just what we liked and what we didn't like about it. But that, for me, that spot was better than every tag team tribute spot in their original match. There, it was a love letter to tag team wrestling, their first match. But that, for me, was better because that was so much more psych- psychologically rich in terms of the FTR Young Bucks chemistry and rivalry than them just saying... We're a better tag team. Look what we can do. No, we're a better tag team. Look what we can do, because FTR kind of should have known that that kind of thing was coming. But the Young Bucks have always the masters of surprise. They're always a master of innovation, and they've always got that one. I think that's why that hot tag cut off was as effective as it was on all of us, uh, affecting as we were you watching. You could it. see Nick Jackson do it as Still well. Still on the apron, yeah. So how did they get it so well? Yeah. He's genius. He's like they're they're just obscure how bizarrely out of position they are. That when the spot happens, seconds later you say. Why was he there? But it doesn't matter then because you've had the thrill, you've had the moment, you know, you've had the rush. Um, masterful, absolutely masterful. Uh, yeah, FTR uh, rightfully at the moment getting getting their flowers from people because you have when you have like two matches in a row like this in such a few short days, of course you're going to mm. get them, you know. Um, but it almost in that way, it almost feels like the young bucks won't emerge from this with as much credit as them, um, and, and they should. This. These are t- yeah. These are the two best teams operating at the very highest level, and that's how you get. That's how you get a five star TV match where there's still stuff left in the chamber for the pay per view decider. Um, the the standard when Cedric was talking about like think about the bar and think of the ground that covers. FTR and the Young Bucks will attempt earnestly and will try and may do it to have a better match than the Young Bucks versus Page and Omega. That's that's what they're working towards, and the fact that you they're making believers out of people that they can do it is is such a credit to them. Well, let us know your thoughts on AEW Dynamite on Twitter at WhatCultureWWE. Watch, they can follow all three of us. You can follow Michael Hamflit at... Michael Hamflit. You can follow Michael Sidgwick at... M. Sidgwick. You can follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at WhatCultureWWE. As I said, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts, including, as I mentioned, our AEW Rampage preview tomorrow. But for now, this has been the AEW Dynamite review. My thanks to the Dadly Boys. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.